Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. In this episode, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined by the utterly brilliant Professor Ronald Hutton. Now, for anyone who doesn't know Ronald's work, and frankly, what have you been doing with your time if you don't? uh, He's a specialist in British folklore, in pre-Christian religion and magic in the early modern period. In our chat with him in this episode, we dive into some of the murky origins of Halloween and we attempt to trace the twisting, shape-shifting history of a festival with which we are all familiar today. The evenings are closing in. The dark is coming over the horizon and it is time for Halloween. I am so excited. This is when I come into my own. I can get my turtlenecks out. It's sweater weather. It's it's sweater (laughs) weather, Maddie. It's sweater weather and I am delighted about it. It's time. It's it's the best time of year. Well, this and Christmas. Um, Thank God. Summer is just so needy. Anyway, look, that's just me going on a a kind of a personal rant. What a surprise that we're both autumnal people. Uh, Yeah, no. (laughs) Who saw that coming? (laughs) This is not a surprise. But it's actually what a what a privilege to be able to talk to professor ronald hutton about this particular topic at this particular time of year it just seems really apt there is nobody who is better placed to talk on this topic and listen we won't take up any more of your time let's go straight to the episode and hear what professor ronald hutton has to say and welcome to this episode of After Dark. We are absolutely thrilled today to be joined by Professor Ronald Hutton and we're going to be chatting about the history of Halloween. So Ronald, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome today. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. Ronald, it is It is. Coming to that time of year where things start to get a little bit darker in the evenings, the nights start closing in and there is talk of spookiness and you see the kind of commercialized trick-or-treating bits and pieces in the shops. So we now have this kind of materialistic performative version of Halloween, but can you tell us a little bit about the history, where that comes from and how people understood this time of year in the distant past? Well, it's always been performative. Um, There's often been a commercial element, but there are really primeval and ancient things running underneath all this. Basically, 
Halloween is the medieval English Christian name for a festival found right across ancient Northern Europe that marks the beginning of winter and is held by Northern European peoples around late October, early November. And it has two aspects which we still have today. One is that it's uh, a time of celebration and fun. It's the end of the farming, the fishing, the trading, and in old days, the fighting year. So everybody is back in the home community with the prophets, the stories, everyone's re-engaging with each other, and they've got lots to eat and drink in a way that isn't usual at other times of the year. But you're right on the edge of the scariest and nastiest of all seasons in Northern Europe, which in good years is going to have boredom, cold, mud, claustrophobia, and a deprivation of light. And in bad years is going to bring influenza and typhus epidemics, hypothermia and death through it, and mass starvation. That's so interesting that Halloween, as we understand it, has these medieval and Christian origins. But of course, this fear of the darkness and winter and all the challenges that it brings is a universal human experience, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. And of course, it goes back much further. So are we able to trace the origins of Halloween to anything pre-Christian? Does it exist in the pre-Christian ancient world in any way? It existed right across the pre-Christian ancient world. All that Christianity in the Middle Ages gave it was an English name. All Hallows' Eve, the Eve of uh, All Hallows or All Saints' Day, and an association with praying for the dead, which is very much a medieval Christian thing to do. But before then, right across Northern Europe, under different names, the twin aspects I've mentioned, that of community regathering plenty and celebration, and stark fear of what's coming, were deeply embedded. This festival was known in Irish as Samhain, Summer's End, known to the Norse, the Vikings, as the Winter Nights, known to the Welsh as Nosgalan, Winter's Eve, known to the Anglo-Saxons as Blotmanuf, the Blood Month, which sounds gory, but it's just about putting down livestock uh, that you can't afford to feed through the winter and by many other names across Central and Eastern Europe. And the spooky bit comes because of the reaction to the prospect of a terrifying season, that with the spirits of cold and dark and want closing in on you, mocking them by dressing up as them, by parodying them, is a very good therapy for coming to terms with what's coming. In olden days, uh, to judge from the surviving folklore, people weren't concerned so much with those who are already dead, but one's own chances of dying before spring. So there is this, I guess, shared experience, although it manifests in different ways, but the shared experience, it seems to me, of fear. Would that be accurate, do you think? Yes, fear definitely. At the very least, nervousness because you're in the grip of primeval, natural, and invincible powers. Uh, whatever happens, the light's going to carry on diminishing. 
until midwinter. Whatever happens, the warmth is going from the sun, the life is going from the trees, the green is going from the land. You're entering the season of death, deprivation and menace. It seems to me that it's obviously a transitional period and it's there's so much interest here in transformation, transformation of the landscape, transformation of the season, and also transformation of the human beings themselves that are experiencing this through costuming and ritual. So, Ronald, can you tell us a little bit about the history of people dressing up at Halloween. We think of that today as, you know, these very sort of plasticky, slightly over-sexualized costumes that you can go and buy, you know, in the corner shop today. But there is a real history of people donning different guises, right, in this festival. There certainly is. Uh, There isn't much sex in Halloween or whatever name you give the old festivals in the old days. It's a bit too cold and creepy. The more erotic festivals are in early summer, but uh, there is everything else. But there's also uh, quite a hard economic undertow behind all this. And that is in most large or well-developed communities, you're going to have richer and poorer people, even in a medieval village. And so, as for every festival, the poor need to have the means to celebrate it. They need to have the surplus food and drink, or in later centuries, the spare money to get it. And so what they do is go round the houses of the rich, the pubs, the streets, begging it from the better off, but to keep their dignity, providing a service providing songs or plays or dances or jokes and dressing up colourfully to entertain the people they're encountering. So this is what Trick or Treat is basically all about. It's redistributing wealth in a community and providing a luxuriant growth of folk entertainment to justify doing so. This happens at all the winter festivals. It's just that it really starts around Halloween. There's something um, kind of enticingly chaotic about what you're describing, Ronald, I think, in terms of this idea that this underlying fear invites people to perform in such elaborate and coordinated ways. It feels like that that is a real moment in a collective identity if you're looking at villages or towns as you're just describing there. Yes, collective identity is what traditional communities are all about. Being an individual is really a modern luxury in many ways. And because this is the great time of regathering after the summer dispersal to different jobs, community is being reinforced and restated around Halloween in an even stronger way than at many other times of year. So, Ronald, if if Halloween up until the Christian medieval period is about fear of dying and it's it's about celebrating or at least marking this transition from the summer into something else, when does it become associated with the dead? When does it become All Hallows' Eve as we, we kind of understand it today? The answer is the early Middle Ages, or to put a date on it, between around 800 and 1,000. Uh, because that's when the Western Christian Church, the one that's based in Rome, uh, and covers the whole of Western and Central Europe, introduces two 
major new festivals. And they're the very first Christian festivals that are big time and are in the second half of the year. It's the period from Christmas to midsummer, which is the time for the big Christian festivals until now. So this is an innovation. And in many ways, I think it's to enable people to cope with the coming of winter better. And one of them is All Saints to commemorate the vast number of Christian saints for whom you can't find room in each community in the rest of the year. There are just too many saints days for anybody to get any work done. And especially early Christian martyrs who died for their faith. And saints come into their own as intercessors with the big three, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Uh, they're the people you talk to to persuade them to ask God Almighty to do favours for you. And that's especially linked to the dead, because around this period, Christianity concedes that the idea that everybody on dying goes straight to heaven or hell or does so at the last judgment seems uh, a bit counterintuitive because very few people seem to be good enough to deserve heaven on a plate or bad enough to deserve being chucked straight into the flames of hell. And so the doctrine grows up of a halfway house called purgatory, to which most people go, in which their sins are tortured out of them, and they're rendered clean and fit for heaven. And the idea comes in with this, that living Christians can reduce the sentences of their beloved dead in purgatory, and even reduce the pain they're suffering if they pray for them and ring bells for them. And that's why the Feast of All Souls is introduced just after All Saints on the 2nd of November for this to happen. But really the two days together are uh, 48 hours of commemorating the beloved dead and trying to help them, and in doing so achieving some kind of closure. It's interesting to me that the tradition of this festival being transactionary in some way is carried over into the sort of Christianization of England or Britain at this time. I'm wondering how ordinary folk, ordinary people feel about the, maybe co-option is not really the right word, but the transformation of Samhain or this festival before it becomes Halloween, how people feel about that being adopted by the Catholic Church, by Christianity. Is that a transition that is ex widely accepted by the broad populace? Not in the least. I think f people feel pretty good uh, because this is not really a transformation, it's an add-on. Everything that's familiar, the celebrations of the community coming back together and the mockery of dark and cold and fear remains. You just get an added bonus in being able to pray for your beloved dead. And the two things are side by side. The Christian church does not persecute these folk customs. In fact, it totally ignores those for the beginning of winter, just lets people get on. They aren't heretical. They don't threaten the church in any way. Uh, they don't cost it anything. And they don't imperil souls. Whereas if you add the praying of the dead to that, then it becomes a further sanctification of the festival. So everybody wins. There's no sign of resistance. And for very good reason, which I 
I think I've explained. You you talk about the praying for the dead, and I, I remember I, I grew up in Catholic Ireland, so these are actually motions that I have moved through in terms of going to the graveyard, saying these prayers, offering up these things for the relief of the souls of our related dead. But is there something also in kind of evoking the dead or haunting of sort of kind of calling on people who have passed over? So obviously there's there's a financial gain for the church when when this happens in terms of some of the money that they're bringing in. And there's a gain for the souls who have departed in that they may have a shorter time in purgatory. But it also to me, and, and this is potentially just personal, but it also used to feel like there was an invocation of the dead in those uh, particular ceremonies where they would join you for a while. Is there any history to that at all? It's a really interesting point and question. Certainly your Irish experience would be par for the modern Catholic one because Protestantism abolished purgatory and praying for the dead, but Catholicism kept praying for the dead, which is why it's not just Ireland where you visit your ancestral graves. It's all over Latin America, hence the Day of the Dead in Mexico, uh, where they've gone very big time on it. The answer to the question is a subtle one, which is that in Christian doctrine, the dead don't come back so you can't commune with them. They're stuck in purgatory or in Protestantism. They're in heaven or hell. Uh, There's radio silence. But the idea that at least some people can return at some times is embedded in intuitive human response. It's embedded in folk tradition. Hence the belief in ghosts, which... uh, to uh, most Orthodox Christians simply shouldn't happen. But people have been meeting them and seeing them for millennia. And so there's a very strong popular feeling that at times like uh, Halloween, you can actually lay out food and drink in case the beloved dead want to come by. Uh, And this is frankly in defiance of uh, anything Christianity has had to say about the subject. But again, it's not controversial. Uh, In practice, the church just seems to have ignored people doing it. And if it's made any comment, tends to talk about silly people and superstitions. In other words, they regard this as completely pointless and ineffectual, but harmless. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. 
Instant Glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We've talked about Halloween's transformation from potentially its ancient origins through to the early medieval world and when we think of Halloween today I certainly think of it as being quite Americanized in terms of the material culture associated with it in terms of popular culture films um, that kind of thing talk to us Ronald about Halloween in America and does it have any roots in the Halloween of the medieval world to survive in a modern world any festival has to be commercialized and that's how it prospers. And the American Halloween is uh, connected by a direct stream of transmission from the ancient Halloween, the ancient feast of the beginning of winter under different names, uh, largely because of massive Irish immigration to America, particularly in and after the famine, the 1840s, but also then continuing. Uh, which set up an enormous and influential Irish-American presence. <laughs> just, just go to Boston or New York and hang out in the pubs there, or name the American presidents uh, with Irish names and nationality, uh, right down to the present one. And they take Halloween with them. They root it in America. And then for the vast number of Americans who aren't Roman Catholics, the transmutation is made into seeing it as a feast that mocks the dark and the scary and mocking monsters and phantoms and ghosts and the wrong kind of witch is something that commercializes really easily that's why we have the boom in uh, american halloween at the present day the one thing that the american halloween can veer into which disturbs uh, quite a lot of devout American evangelical Protestants, is that it can appear to glamorize or glorify evil. This is a contentious assertion, and I'm not supporting it myself, but it's clearly a culture war, and it's kicked over into uh, Britain as well, with evangelical Protestants feeling that Halloween is somehow wrong. Glorifying and glamorizing evil or badness is something the Winter Festival never did. It's supposed to do the exact opposite. Yeah, I, I, it really struck me when you said that, that one word we hadn't said until now is evil. And that's one of the things that maybe a lot of people would associate with aspects of Halloween. And okay, there, there is fear, but that's definitely not equal to evil. And this idea of evilness 
what is that connected to, Ronald? Do you think is it is it a, a demonic connection? Is that is that what the evangelicals in in the United States are are linking it with? Well, the evangelicals in the United States do link it to demons because they link practically anything they think is wrong to demons. Uh, but again, this this is not traditional. The fear that hangs over Halloween is not connected to cosmic evil. Nobody in uh, the ancient world or Middle Ages thought that winter was engineered by a Satan figure. It just happens. It's part of the natural order. But it's one of its most forbidding characteristics. You know, it's our fault for being up in this part of the world where the temperature drops dangerously at a certain time of year. And so, Evil was not part of it, but terror, fear, menace. Well, one would not describe a, a hurricane or an avalanche as evil, but what it does amounts to the same kind of thing, you know, mass loss of life, mass loss of property. So winter is out to get us, reasonably enough, and it's up to us to try and stop it. One thing I, I want to pick up on there, Ronald, you mentioned the witch in relation to Halloween, and I'm very interested in the sort of archetypal characters that we we now wheel out for Halloween celebrations, and that in some ways they are the you know the sort of the manifestation of some of these fears. Now, obviously, as you well know from your fantastic uh, recent book about the witch, witches have a very complex and long history of their own. But what's their role in relation? to Halloween. Is that an entirely modern connection that's being made there? Is that something that has its roots in the medieval Christian period? Does the witch have a place in these celebrations? Witches arrive rather belatedly at Halloween. They begin to be associated with it by the 18th, 19th centuries. But that's largely because they enter the package of menacing spirits and entities in most traditional societies, witches, in the very limited and specific sense of human beings who work magic to hurt others, are the classic human bogey figures. They are feared in most parts of the inhabited world by most societies through most times, though not all. Their means of accounting for capricious fortune, people having uncanny bad luck, and uh, if you attribute uncanny bad luck to other sources, you don't fear and believe in witches. And the other two sources are angry ghosts, uh, ancestors you've annoyed, and uh, malicious land spirits, fairies or elves. But most human societies have come down on witches. And that there is no particular association with Halloween until the relatively modern period, when witches become uh, standardized folk figures, bogey figures, largely because you're no longer arresting them, putting them to death in practice. So they've come like cartoon characters, and so can join the other assemblage of cartoon characters that trot out at Halloween. Mm, that's absolutely fascinating. Thinking about some of the other traditions that we still practice today, I'm thinking in particular about pumpkins. To me, this feels like a, a more authentically maybe pagan practice. Does its history go that far back when it comes to Halloween? Jack-o'-lanterns hollowed out vegetables with candles inside. 
feel very pagan, but they're actually not at Halloween, rather like witches and Halloween, they're a modern connection. They can't be pumpkins in Europe because that's an American vegetable that arrives here in the 20th century. But you do have an association between will-o'-the-wisps, the, the uh, strange lights that appear in marshland, and ghosts and phantoms. They're part of the general spookiness of the landscape. And a very easy way of making a lantern if you're poor and you can't afford a commercial one is to hollow out a mangle wurzel or a turnip and stick a candle inside and use that to light your way. And they're well recorded right back into history. But actually, it's the Americans in the late 19th century who developed the Halloween custom hollowing out pumpkins, very often in fascinating shapes and lighting them up. And this gets over to England, in the, to Britain in the early 20th century. And uh, sometimes turnips and mangle wurzels are substituted. But it's, it's basically an American Halloween idea. Mm. That's, that's a little bit disappointing. <laughs> well, you can still keep the association with uh, will-o'-the-wisps because when uh, people in Somerset, for example, begin imitating the American custom with mangle wurzels, the names that they give to these are those of the will-o'-the-wisps in Somerset levels which are immemorial, pagan, if you like, and really very spooky. It's interesting that you mentioned the class element. I, I know you mentioned it in passing, Ronald, but the, you know, for poor people to use the turnip, for instance. And I know when we were kids, we hollowed out turnips and there was always this kind of, you know, thing in rural Ireland that it was it was a poor thing to do that if you if you didn't have the pumpkin. I just wondered if you could say a little bit about the kind of class elements to Halloween then. There are class elements to anything in a traditional society, and they come out uh, fighting at every festival because basically the rich can celebrate more than the poor. But the dynamic has usually been quite a cosy and reciprocal one, and it is based on uh, the arrangements I spoke of earlier that what makes festivals exciting is that people do exciting things like putting on theatre, like dancing, like bringing in garlands or maples, like lighting bonfires, like singing special songs like Christmas carols. And if you're rich, the great thing is you have other people to do that for you. And if you're poor, the great thing is you can then do that, which gives you some kind of dignity and pride as you're providing a service for the community. And then you get rewarded, which saves you from begging. And so every festival has this built-in mechanism since history begins and probably long before, whereby the poor entertain the rich and the rich pay for it. And together you get a great show. Before we wrap up, Ronald, I want to ask about, in terms of this pre-Christian Samhain celebration, if we want to mark it today or our listeners want to mark it today, what kinds of rituals and, and sort of rites should we be following? There are all sorts. Party games 
are a great feature of Halloween. They're a great feature of any winter festival because you're indoors. But bobbing for apples, or if you're really suicidal, trying to take apples in your mouth from uh, wooden racks with candles burning on them, hanging from the... I, I've done this, and I don't recommend it to the faint-hearted, but it certainly uh, raises the stakes. <laughs> uh, all manner of uh, regular party games, card games, charades, and the dressing up and going round to say hello to your neighbours. Fancy dress. You know, that, that's the, uh, one of the greatest single aspects of festivity as a whole, especially in winter. But at Halloween, when you can pretend to be so much that's really exotic, really creepy, really dramatic is the favourite time for it. Just as a, a very quick parting word then, I suppose we've, we've looked at the history of Halloween, we've looked at the origins of some of these rituals and their performative elements. Could you leave us with an idea of what you think Halloween means today? Today, Halloween ruffles people. It makes people uncomfortable as well as uh, gives them a great opportunity for enjoyment. Because really it forces people to confront two things, even if they don't realize it, with which humanity is still profoundly uncomfortable because it's powerless. One is the seasons, the fact that we're in the grip of uh, a changing climate, even without mass climate change. And the other is death. And the two of them come together at Halloween and uh, Render it a festival for which the emotional stakes are raised particularly high. That's just fascinating. And, you know, I'm so excited for Halloween now this year. I feel fully equipped to enjoy myself. Well, Ronald, thank you so much. Um, that was just the most fantastic discussion. And I know it's one that our listeners will enjoy. So thank you very much for coming on today. And thank you for such intelligent questions. You're a wonderful Anglo-Irish partnership. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. We try, thank we you. try. We're building we bridges, Ronald. B building bridges. If you enjoyed this episode of After Dark, please follow wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really liked us, and I know you did, you definitely really liked this, so drop us a review. Go on, do it now. After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal is a podcast by History Hit. This podcast includes music by Epidemic Sounds. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.